0: Welcome to the All Ways Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. If it helps to evolve us as individuals, we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because after all, we are always evolving. And in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I am here today with two guests I'm really excited to have a conversation with today. As we were approaching Black History Month, I didn't really have a plan to address the topic. I didn't really, it wasn't a conscious intention to do it. And then what happened was I had an interaction, a couple of interactions with men in my family. And these are good men. Good people, good hearts, loving people. And I could tell with both of them that they were having a lot of challenges with the concept of racism and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Like immediately there was this knee-jerk reaction. It's a similar knee-jerk reaction that I witnessed when Kaepernick took a knee. And I didn't understand why are we, why is everyone reacting so strongly to this? And I noticed based on the interaction that I had two things. One was that white Americans, a lot of them are thinking, you know what, I didn't I didn't do this. I wasn't responsible for the things that happened in the past. So I shouldn't be made to feel guilty. So there's white guilt. I realized that there's a lot of that that comes up which is triggering for people. And the other part of it is a comment that one gentleman made which was about black americans needing to be to educate themselves to be appropriately educated basically to catch up with the times so that they didn't have all this anger toward us toward white americans and i had i had such a strong reaction to that, that that i responded and and said i don't think they're the ones that need to be educated we're the ones that need to be educated we're the ones that kind of need to wake up the stuff that we're not seeing. And I live in Orlando. I'm six miles, literally six miles from Okoe, Florida, where a hundred years ago, this past November, there was something called the Ocoee Massacre, where an untold number of uh, Black families were slaughtered. And I never knew about that. Until this was, until this came out in November, I never even knew about it, right? So, it's not even something that's taught in our history books. I mean, this is one example, but the reason it blew my mind is it's right around the corner for me. And I'm always trying to think of ways to open up the lines of communication. How do we get everybody at the table being open-minded to what the other parties are saying? How do we get everybody, how do we bridge the gap here so that a dialogue can happen without unconscious white privilege or white guilt stopping us from being able to move forward. I have two guests with me today. I'm so grateful that both of you have decided to join me, have been willing to join me. I've got Dan McCool with me. Dan taught race, politics, and the law at Framingham State University and is the author of Self, Institutions, and Others. Anything else that we should know about you about why you're the perfect person to have this conversation with?
1: I'm not sure from the perfects, but I, I hope I can live up to some some grade of uh, some grade of quality. Uh, but we did meet through uh, Blue Revolution, which is the group I run, uh, which works to advance progressive candidates and policies around the country. Uh, but it is, it is great to be here.
0: I reached out to Alicia Jones McLeod. She is the executive director of Challenging Racism, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to educate people about the prevalence and inequities of institutional and systemic racism, giving them the knowledge Mm -hmm. and tools they need to challenge racism when they encounter it and where they encounter it.
2: Anything- Exactly correct, exactly correct. That's exactly what we do on a regular basis. Um, And we do that through a number of different ways, which I think we'll talk about a little bit.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I kind of wanted this to be a roundtable discussion where we could just explore where we are in America today. And rather than, when I I think when some people hear certain words, certain words are so emotionally loaded that people immediately shut down, like God, <laughs> right? You say the name or the word God, and people immediately have all kinds of preconceived ideas that trigger things. And they... Oftentimes will shut down to anything outside of what they already know and already believe to be true. I think the word racism has that effect on some people in the United States. So what I wanted to do was look at this from the perspective of I the way I see it is white Americans have the responsibility at this point to notice and recognize. Where they're unconscious about this, because a lot of people don't think they're racist. They don't believe that they're racist, and some some people blatantly are. We saw that with you know all the Confederate flags and everything that happened on January sixth. There's plenty of that that's out in the open. That stuff had to come up and out, and now we know what we're dealing with, right? But there's a lot of unconscious racism, and so that's kind of what I wanted to address today, and. And I would love your help in helping people to understand or recognize if that's happening to them. Am I being unconscious in my white privilege? How would a
2: person recognize that? Um, Yes, I want to challenge the terminology just a little bit. Um, So I think that we can call it passive, but not unconscious. I think that there is enough information in the world um, that we have access to, that we need to be, we need to be seeking it out. So it can be passive. Maybe you just didn't do anything about it, but it's not unconscious. Um, so I'm saying that passive racism is a place where something happens to someone and we don't do anything to stop it. So it's a negative thing that happens to someone and we don't intervene. Um, and intervening is really what you are called to do. So as a, um, as a person with white skin privilege, which is what we call it, um, white skin privilege means that, doesn't mean that you have every privilege in the world. I don't have every privilege in the world. You don't have every privilege in the world. Um, and I will tell you, LGBTQ people will tell you that. People that are um, differently abled will tell you that. Um, there's a, a bunch of different privileges. I walk on two feet, I am happily married, and my husband and I, being heterosexual couple, have a heterosexual privilege. That's a privilege in this country um, because we're Christian-based. We don't all have the same privilege. But what it means if you have white skin privilege is that you have never given a thought to the color of your skin affecting the way you are perceived in the world. You You will do all kinds of things without thinking about, will people judge me because I'm white? That's not a thing that you generally do. That is a thing I do every single day. And that's really white skin privilege. It doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't, I mean, don't feel, you don't have to feel guilty about it, but we do have to create a plan to disrupt it so that we are able to spread the privilege around. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I've heard it said, it's not enough just
2: to be not racist. You have to be be anti-racist. Yes. Yes. Kendi is awesome. Yes. You have to be anti-racist. You have to disrupt, you have to dismantle, and you have to use your privilege for good. As I tell my children, use your superpowers for good. If you have one, use it to help other people. Um, Don't keep it to yourself. Your, you know, your light shouldn't be under a bushel. So um, that's just what we need to do. We need to spread around the privilege to make sure that we amplify, listen, and support others that might not have the privilege at the moment. Mm,
0: perfect. And you know, there's an interesting challenge in that because I found myself in that position when there was it was an email exchange that I had with one of the males in my family. And again, beautiful man. I love him dearly. But when I finished reading that email, I had such a visceral response that I had to respond. And I think that was maybe the first time I had been in a position to to be to do something that was specifically anti-racist i had to call him out on it and and i realized that i haven't done that very often i haven't been actively involved enough and that that was the moment i realized i wanted to do a podcast on this topic because that's the shift that i think we need to make it's not enough to just not be racist we have to be anti racist we have to step in and do something about the patterns that have been going on for hundreds of years in this country. So, Dan, I want to check in with you. Any <laughs> thoughts or comments that you want to insert here? Yeah,
1: in in um, I, I agree with you know everything that's been that's been said so far, and I think that the the place that I come. Come to this from is uh, the notion that um, you know a couple things about sort of anti-racism. Um, not enough to be not racist, but to be anti-racist. I think that there's a few different angles on that 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 thought that people struggle with. Um, one is to be to have agency. To be, a, to be a citizen is to have agency and to actively um, either support or, or oppose something, right? Sort of in the public realm, in the public sphere. And I think we live in a political culture right now where people feel a sense of almost existential dread about entering the public sphere um in in a way that will fulfill them and so i think that you know when we're asking folks to do anything that is outside their comfort zone anything outside their sort of private experience um you know in my opinion the issue of racism or anti-racism is is the number one issue that americans should be uh, you know uh exercising their agency over um but but there's many other issues as well and I think that that's a real sort of national problem, is how to actually inject yourself into the public square. And I think that this is, there's a reckoning going on right now where there's been 40, 50, 60 years of a decline of, of social capital uh, in the United States where people just don't know their entry point into the public realm. Um, I think, Erica, it's a great place to start to email back someone that you know, that's not nothing, that's big, that's uncomfortable, Right, that's that's outside of going along with the flow, uh, so that's good, and people should should do that every day. People should do that whenever they get the chance to do it. Um, I know that among uh, me and my uh, sort of white friends and and perhaps white uh, extended family members, I do it at every chance that I can uh, to um, sort of respectfully push back on on notions that that don't line up with a, with a sense of justice uh, in this area. Um, you know i also think that it it, it requires um, a sense of um history right uh you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this conversation that uh someone in your in your realm was talking about how um folks need to know their history and it will make them less angry if if people knew their history it would probably make them more angry uh <laughs> you know uh particularly the, the the history of racism so um that is a hard thing to um, disseminate widely, is, is a sort of common knowledge of history. And I think what's happening in America right now is there's two different histories being adhered to. And, well, more than two, but, but for the sake of, of, of this conversation too. And um, you know, a lot of the, the controversy over um, you know, the Trump administration trying to roll back the 1619 project and uh, take some of, the, some of the historical knowledge out of the public realm uh, was an attempt to sort of do what this person in your realm was saying, which is to say let's let 's whitewash it so I think always being conscious of the way that history is getting whitewashed uh is is very important you know when I used to teach this class on race politics and the law it was you know I always sort of begin the class by saying uh you know the history of race in america is not a is not an, an adjunct to to american history it 's not a um a side a side subject uh, it it really is the bulk of it and that's going to take some time, some generational time, I think really, for people to to latch on to is that racism is a central part of American history, and that's that's going to take some time and some effort uh, from from all of us I think to mm-hmm. disseminate
0: yeah, and very good points, and thank you for sharing that part of part of my background is really looking at our our social conditioning on an individual level we've you know, we come into this world and we're wide open. We don't even begin to develop a filter for the incoming messages that we receive from the world around us until at least the age of seven. Somewhere between the ages of about seven and 11, we start to develop a filter. And usually by the age of 15, that filter is pretty firmly in place, which means that up until the ages of seven to 11, up until at least those ages, everything we hear from our Religious leaders, our political leaders, our teachers, um, the media, our parents and grandparents, everything we hear, we take in like a sponge and it becomes a part of our self concept and concept of the world. It becomes a part of our paradigm. It's the way we filter and perceive everything. And we don't even realize that this is happening. So we become adults and everything we've taught, been taught or not been taught, everything we've experienced, everything we've witnessed, everything we've overheard, some racist uncle say, all that stuff is coming in and it's becoming embedded into the very lens through which we perceive reality. And so what's happening is now we get to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. And as far as we're concerned, this is just the way the world is. There's no questioning it. And so I guess that's what I meant by the unconscious, you know, like bringing the unconscious into the conscious awareness, because then we have choice. And that's why it blew my mind so much when after what happened with George Floyd, that was a big awakening for a lot of people. And suddenly I started learning about and hearing about things in history that I never knew, like never knew. Talk about whitewashing. that It just was not even a part of my reality. So when you only have one reality that's being pushed and taught and there is no there's nothing to bounce that off of there's no alternative to it you get stuck in that perspective and it's like asking a fish to describe the water that it swims in so when with somebody like the older male americans white americans mm-hmm. that are kind of stuck in this perspective i'm trying to figure out how do we how do we break through and maybe you answered that question maybe this is a generational oh. generational thing where we have to educate the younger generation. Go ahead, Alicia. Well, let me ask you,
2: are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed. Okay, I am also right-handed. Have you ever met anyone that was left-handed? Yes. You know anyone, okay. If you ask them about the issues of being left-handed, they will share with you a litany of different things that you never ever saw. That's the way that we explain privilege. It's, it's you going through the world as a right-handed person, not even noticing that the person sitting right next to you has issue on top of issue with the microwave, with, the, with zipping pants, with, with all of these things mm. that you do very easily and don't even notice. So there's actually a video, Left-Handed versus Right-Handed. Just watch one and you'll see all of these things and you'll be like, oh my God, like even the way your notebook and your calendar open, like all of those things are made for right-handed people. Mm. That's the same thing that we need to take into understanding white skin privilege and the disadvantage that other people have in living in the same world. That it's when things are made for the majority, the people that are not the majority suffer. Like that is just the way things are. Mm. So when you, have a, when you have one group making all the rules and you have another group that has to live by them, that's not being taken into account and they don't have a voice, it's challenging. So when I say that there's an invisibility of privilege, it is like the water that the fish is swimming in. Um, but at some point, we have to realize that there's water there. <laughs> Otherwise, mm-hmm. as a person, you will get wet. So we have to figure out how do we tell people that they're swimming in this water, that this this water exists, and they need to see it. We learn that air exists. We don't all see it, but we learn that it exists. We accept it. We accept that we need it and it's necessary for us to live. That's the same way that we need to look at systemic racism, that we need to understand that it's built into our systems. There's, there's very little currently that the regular ordinary white citizen does to exert their privilege. I mean, there are some people, we've seen them on YouTube, that do things that are just, you knew that was privilege. You knew, you knew when you called that number that that was using your privilege. But most people do not go through the world trying to hurt other people. That's not what they're doing. They're just moving through the world. And as they move through, and they have that privilege, it is you need to dismantle it. Look at it, dismantle it, understand it, and then use it to help others. That's really what. That's really how we're going to get to a place where we we have equity in our systems. Is that helpful?
0: That's great. I mean, that analogy of the left and versus right hand is a perfect, perfect way to put it. When I was having that interaction, that email interaction, I was trying to. I always try to put myself in the other in the other person's shoes. But in this situation, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of um, being marginalized, what it must be like. And I even said, can you even imagine how lucky you are to be a white American male? Like, do you have any idea that you're at the top of the totem pole? Like, you know, that's the luckiest. I consider myself lucky because I haven't got to fight those same battles as Black women do, but I'm still a woman. I still have a hundred years
2: ago, I didn't have the right to vote. We didn't have but the right- have you been? have you been in a meeting where you say something? And then if you've been in corporate America, every woman that I know that's been in corporate America has been in a meeting where you make a suggestion and then some guy says exactly what you just said. Yes, yes, and then yes. it's like, oh yeah. Instead of amplifying that you were the one that came up with it, they take it and they move along with it. Not every man is like that. I'm not saying that. Right. But that's the same issue that we gotta stop. we gotta stop and acknowledge- where it came from. So being a woman is being othered, even though we're half the population, we're still othered even today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, those are the things I pointed out. And I, and I basically was trying to get him to look at, do you have any idea how lucky you are, how blessed you are that you don't even have to think about these things. And, you know, I consider myself blessed, like that. I don't have to, like you said, I don't have to question about whether or not the color of my skin is going to be an issue today. That doesn't even enter my mind, but the fact that I'm a woman does. And so when I said that to him, I was as loving and as respectful as I could. And he emailed me back and all he said was, this seems to be upsetting you and we don't have to talk about it anymore. And I was like, I'm not upset. (laughs) I just wanted to bring your attention to something. So anyway, that's why I thought, you know what, this is something I want to talk about with with other people i'm i'm basically coming to the two of you to help educate me and then then through me to the listeners of my podcast or the viewers on my youtube channel so dan i want to come around to you as the white american man <laughs> in this meeting no pressure there <laughs> yeah. but but speak to that like speak to surely you have conversations with other uh and not that white american men are the problem i am not saying that but they are and they are the most powerful men in the room always right
1: i think that there's a a myth that has been perpetuated in the united states and i'm coming to this from a more of a sort of political angle because i i do want to hear more about um these sort of tools these sort of micro tools i guess that alicia was speaking to in terms of just being able to listen to to people, being able to listen to other people's experience, uh, just on an everyday basis, you know what's happening here in the year 2021. I think is important uh, in and of itself. I think, I think the ways in which I've gotten into some of the most fruitful conversations with people in my own cohort is to think of the ways, and it's a little bit abstract, but I think thinking of the ways in which, generationally, historically, some of our advantages have acued uh, is is the most poignant way I've been able to sort of point this out. for example, you know i I mean I, I come from Scottish and Irish ancestry, and there was certainly a time in you know the the history of my um, uh, of my ancestors where they struggled in the United States. There was also a time when they were paid a lot of attention to and given lots of benefits. Uh, When they went out into the public sphere and demanded them. Right. So my great grandfather, who obviously I did not know, or my great great grandfather, I'm sure, uh, did not have a lot of um, protest against the idea of of, uh, housing for the poor, right, or uh, more progressive taxation, or labor laws, or anything else that was considered progressive legislation, uh, because of course they were poor and they were not part of the ruling class at the time. Sometime around the 1970s, 1980s, uh, there started to be this, to go back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, of this comment, is a really a myth that white America and particularly white American males, sort of Reagan's America, uh, had made it for themselves and then every, everyone else now had to make it for themselves. This is, this is patently false, there's been uh, goodies and subsidies and extended rights showered upon white Americans for hundreds of years now. And sometime around the early 1980s is when I think white America at large, not everyone, but, but at large sort of shut off the spigot and said, no more, no more goodies for anyone because we made it ourselves and everyone else has to, has to also do that. And um, I think about 40, you know, 40 or 45 years of, of um, sort of these types of policies have, uh, have sort of come home to roost. And now there's sort of a development of sort of a white underclass in America or an emerging white underclass who are angry. And this is something that recycles again and again throughout American history. What they're being taught is that it's the fault of the immigrant or it's the fault of, people who don't work hard enough, who who don't look like them. And, and that's what the last, I think, five years have been about in, in our culture. The, the the trick is to disseminate some of this history to people without coming off as preachy, uh, as, I, as I sometimes do, uh, because people don't like to be, you know, people are sort of, they don't like to be challenged. But challenging is what we have to do, uh, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the time. So, it's it's tricky you know to have a democratic conversation uh, to have a conversation in a democracy about something substantial is very very difficult thing to do, particularly when you're dealing with generational factors and historical factors um, but that's I don't have the answer for it, but that's sort of what we all i think need to be to be grappling towards uh, to to get people to open up their their consciousness their historical consciousness their their sense of privilege their sense that you know, the moment that they're in right now was something that was built over generations. It's not something that just fell out of the sky. And like I said, difficult, difficult conversation to have, but, but one that we need to think about.
0: Yeah. It, thank you for that. It really is, which is why I wanted to have you both here because I have felt like, I know my eyes are open and I, and I know that I've been kind of asleep. It wasn't my problem. It wasn't my problem. It wasn't my problem. And then I saw, wait a minute, it is my problem. Because as long as I do nothing, I'm a part of the problem. I'm contributing to the problem. And so as an educator, I'm always looking for ways, And as a communicator and as an educator, I'm always looking for ways, how do we open up the conversation and how do we raise our consciousness, like evolve the way that we think about this issue, whatever that issue is. But this just really just came, it really was brought home in such a powerful way for me because I had two similar conversations with two beautiful men that I love. And I realized they're the fish that that don't, that they don't know they're swimming in that water, right? There's just no awareness of it. And so I want help. And this is where I guess I'm reaching out to you now, Alicia, is what are the tools? What do we do to help raise awareness? Because there are some people the there are some people as soon as they know what the topic of this this conversation is they've already
2: tuned out <laughs> yep um well let me let me first share that um one of the things that you can do is find ways to explain conceptually to people what it is that's is going on, right like I just explained to you left handed right handed mm-hmm. and that hit home for you. use that again and again, show people a video like. Like, try to reach them where they are that doesn't make them feel like it's an us and them conversation. So that's part of the work that we do at Challenging Racism. We don't want to, I I, I have no desire to make people feel terrible about who they are. Like, that's not who I am. Um, I'm about uplifting everyone, making sure that we're equitable, that we're, we're all doing well, you know, rising tide lifts all ships, right? Like, so that's what I'm about. So when we look at it in a way that doesn't put us um, diametrically opposed, it's, it's easier for us to have those conversations. Now, I will say we have access to all kinds of technology, all kinds of books and learning tools and articles and, and everything. So here's, here are two things that I ask people to do. One, there is a 21-day racial equity habit building challenge, which is put out by um, Moore and Associates. I'm doing it right now. As a matter of fact, I got my podcast that I'm going to listen to queued up right after this one. Um, but it's a way to bring different ideas into your into your realm. And not all of it, I mean, there's a lot of historical context, but there's everyday context. Just hearing and normalizing voices of pe- of other people and other types of people, people that come from different backgrounds, people that come from, that are diverse, that's helpful. So normalizing... Um, race in your own life is helpful. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you have a spouse, if you have a family, there are ways that you can bring in other voices into the conversation without shoving it down people's throat and making them feel like, well, you know, you're know, you a terrible racist. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Um, it, it can be gradual. So introduce some other voices. So the, the thing that I ask people to do is if you, like, I don't know what you're into. I love podcasts. I absolutely love them. Every, I have a whole list. Um, I'm very into podcasts and I'm very into politics. So those are two things that I love and, and passions of mine. If I'm listening to a podcast or following a political writer or commentator, um, maybe what I need to do is add another voice, add someone that has an Asian um, background to that same list. They're still talking about politics. It's still my passion project. But it's adding a different perspective and a different voice that gives me more perspective. Does that make sense? It's just deepening the layers of the ways that you can add people into your life. The second thing is really making it a conscious effort of doing one thing, one small thing every single day that can help you to have to normalize the other um, voices in the world so that you don't feel like I, I watch. I also watch TV. So I don't know if you watch TV, but I watch TV. So I watch a show like I watched um, Bridgerton. Have you seen Bridgerton? I,
0: I know. Yes. Isn't it lovely? I, I, I love Shaza. it. When I the, yeah, when I watch that show, and I see the way, I see the way, it, it's an imaginary world where imagine back then that mm-hmm. Blacks and whites lived equally amongst each other, there was no difference. And and I remember thinking, imagine how different the
2: world would be today yeah. if that had happened that far back. That's Kind of But might. even seeing them in a relationship, mm-hmm. it's normalizing a relationship between two people from different ethnicities. Who would have thought? <laughs> so like, like just having that kind of stuff. I mean, Sesame Street tried to do this a long time ago, but I think the conversation got lost in translation. But ha- that's really what we need to do as adults. Let's normalize what it is um, for different people to come together with differing perspectives and then talk about their story. Now, I do have one other thing to say, the mute button. The world of Zoom has helped in communication so much because we have a frigging mute button. When you are listening to someone's story, when you are, when you are trying to be um, open and hear where someone is coming from, use your frigging mute button and take notes. Do not interrupt. Listen and hear their full story without you having to say a word. That's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And I challenge people to do that when they're listening to someone with a differing perspective, and that's why I think that Zoom was a godsend for this, for this current political climate, because you hit that mute button and don't say a word, listen to what they have to say uninterrupted and hear their entire story. And then afterwards, when they invite you to ask about it, ask a question that shows that you were listening. Mm, Communication 101. Okay. Yes. I'm all brilliant.
0: done. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. I, I don't even have any, anything to add. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, Dan, I want to circle back around to you.
1: I kind of want to keep my mute button on, though, now. <laughs> <laughs> not to, not to uh, go full circle, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, but I will take it off and, and answer your question for sure.
0: So is there anything, when you're teaching on race and, and politics and race and the law, what kinds of things do you share to help raise the awareness of the people in that class when you were teaching that class what kinds of things because it's, okay so here are some of the here are some of the things that i've heard right but black people commit more crimes but you know all of these stereotypes that people have have come to believe that may or may not be true i had a, a a text exchange with somebody where I was actually sending, well, actually, if you look at statistics, that's not true. Black on black crime, white on white crime. Like if you look at that, the belief that Americans have, that white Americans have that the black community is responsible for the the bulk of the crime in the United States is not necessarily true. And I've noticed that the younger generation is starting to parrot some of that. We've got two teenage boys, And we've been having conversations with a lot of this stuff about them, uh, with them. And um, I've started hearing some of that stuff come out of their mouth. And I said, you know, wait a minute. I I actually sat them down. The the four of us sat down and we watched the movie 13th. And when the movie was over, I wanted to, to talk about it. Like, okay, what is your thought about this, about how... Our perception of what's really going on. How do you believe that that's been impacted by what you're being shown by the world around you? And honestly, they were so shell shocked. They were silent. They, their only response was, "I'm I'm still processing that." So, I felt like, I felt like I did my step parent duty of the <laughs> of the week by sitting down with them and at least having them watch that video and imparting some other information into their into their ears that is not necessarily lining up with what they're hearing. So anyway, so over to you, what can you tell me?
1: About- well, I, I mean, I think for one thing, like, I mean, I've learned a lot from this conversation by just, just these very, um, I'll call them just like empathy hacks, right? Like what is it like to be a left-handed person? Um, that's a really, you know, sort of just a, a everyday question that you can ask So just, I mean, honestly, I, just, I think just just listening I think that there needs to be a lot more listening um, in the country. And listening is different from just absorbing. Uh, listening is different from just passively sitting there staring, right? It's not um, its not a screen uh, that you're talking to. It's not a, a TV show that you're talking to. It's a person that you're talking to uh, when you listen to other people's experiences. So I think just uh, a deep sense of listening, right? A deep sense of what does it actually mean to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think that you know, our, our political world has has almost conditioned us in the last several years to not want to do that because uh, it's scary, right? Uh, it, it means that you might have to change your own behavior, and people are scared by that. Um, so I think just these these um, these sort of, like I said, sort of empathy hacks that that Alicia was um, uh, sort of speaking to, and you know, but I think like if uh, the problem is you can't sit all of America down and put them into a classroom, right? Um, at the same time. Um, but to the extent that you can, uh, and to the extent that, you know, people sort of uh, are willing to do the reading and, and the viewing and the listening and, and listening to shows like this and uh, watching, uh, you know, educational material on this and, and everything else. Um, you know, look, what, what I tell my classes is that, um, you know, historic, I mean, slavery was not that long ago. Uh, Jim Crow America was not that long ago. I mean, Jim Crow America existed 55 years ago, right? Uh, 55 years. We've we've only had a full democracy, a, 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 an attempt at a multi-racial democracy in this country for 55 years. Um, you know, think about a person who's 55 years old, right? It's not it's not that long ago. And um, you know, the the things that we come to believe uh, in our sort of everyday consciousness. Um, you know, uh, I think that we were sort of using different words to describe this, whether it's uh, uh, unconsciousness or sort of just passive racism, uh, as, as Alicia was calling it. I mean, those those are the product of sort of long standing generational glacial assumptions uh, that we have as a population. So the, this, this stuff is new. The idea of having uh, the idea of trying to have a multiracial Equitable democracy is a new thing, uh, relatively speaking. And fifty-five years for a young person seems like a very long time. Uh, But (laughs) once you get, um, you know, once you get a little bit older, it doesn't seem that it doesn't seem that long. So I think that just kind of letting people know and sort of framing things as, you know, when you look at the the broad swath of American history, uh, slavery has existed here longer than non-slavery has. you know, some sense of racial apartheid has existed here way longer than a uh, non-apartheid period, right? I mean, if you go all the way back to 1619, right? I mean, count how many years that is and 55 years uh, in the post-Jim Crow era. So, uh, and now, you know, I mean, I think that we've been, we become so lackadaisical about understanding this history and this kind of basic civic, um, these basic civic facts that, you know, when I was in college for, you know, Getting a political science degree back in the early 2000s, you know, there was a lot of talk about how the Jim Crow South and sort of voting, uh, voting restrictions and, and voter oppression, you know, this is something that happened a couple generations ago, but we kind of solved that. Right. And we became so lax about it that it's roaring back um, with just incredible intensity. And it's not the same as it was in the 1920s, 30s and 40s and 50s. It's not as explicit although sometimes politicians will slip up and accidentally make it explicit. Um, you know, But I mean, it's, it's roaring back because of the fact that we just haven't been aware of our history. So I think, again, to, not to be redundant, but to round back to what this um, your interlocutor said in, in your circle at the beginning, people need to know their history. I, I full-heartedly agree on that, right? Mm. That people do need to know their history. Uh, and it would make them more active and it would make them more conscious of race, not less so. Um, so I think that, that that's a national... That's a national endeavor. It's a generational endeavor.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So, so educate ourselves and be open and empathic to other people's experiences and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. I, I know that, so, so I have a, a page, I have a, a page, my, one of my businesses, my business name is Empath Yoga, and it's very much about this heart-centered, compassionate, way of being in the world. And I shared a couple of things around politics because it, it, it relates. There's and there's this misconception in the spiritual community that you're supposed to just float around in the ethers and you're not supposed to talk about anything substantive because you're just supposed to be happy and blissful and peaceful all the time, which I call that spiritual bypassing. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because it's just not really grounded in reality. So I talk about real life issues. And there have been a couple of people that have just attacked me on my page because I thought this was a yoga page. I thought this was about spirituality and somehow there's this disconnect. And, and so I guess it's outside of my comfort zone to, to have conversations like this, which is why I want to do it. (laughs) Because I feel like that's how we continue to grow and evolve is we're always kind of pushing up against our edge of what's comfortable for us. And that's why I wanted to have you both here because, I know there's so much for me to learn. And if I can help in any way, get this information out there, I want to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. So I I want to circle back around to each of you to see if there's anything else that you want to say before we wrap up and also ask you if you will provide any links that you would like for me to share in the show notes with people um, like you were talking about that 21 day podcast challenge. I love it. I will totally do that. And so I would like to be able to share that. So um, before we wrap up, Alicia, is there anything else that you want to say? Do you feel like there's anything that we haven't touched on yet?
2: Um, Yes, I wanted to, um, I actually, I told you I was going to take some notes, so I didn't interrupt, but um, I did have a point that I wanted to make to you personally, Erica, that um, I, I want you to have a community that surrounds you, that supports you in this work. So there are enough people that are white skinned that want to be better. Find some, find some of those people. um, So that they, it's low hanging fruit to tell that person the left-handed, right-handed analogy, right? Like it's low hanging fruit when they want to know. So start with some of those people. And um, I'm not saying don't jump into the deep end, um, but what happens if you try to, it's like the, it's like that old saying, like, you don't want to do the hardest thing first. Sometimes you can get, you can get discouraged. So I don't want you to be discouraged in this work. I want you to actually um, progress and be able to share. And in a year, I want to come back in, in next year and hear you say, you know what? I am launching a podcast just about racial equity. <laughs> I'll be your guest every week." But But really like, you know, I want you to keep continuing to feel connected to this and feel like you're making a difference because you are. Um, And that's important. It's important to kind of give yourself a pat on the back once in a while. Um, And I wanted to say um, one more thing that kudos to you for your teenage boys um, and sitting down and watching a movie with them. Um, I would also suggest that you try to introduce them to some things that are just normalizing um, so that they... I think that there is a challenge that we have right now with media, where a lot of media that um, centers Black stories is about the crucifixion of Black people. Like there's there's some kind of sacrifice of of the Black life in that story. There are a lot of stories that are just like um, there are just there are stories just about two people having a relationship um, that just happen to be Black and white or Latina and you know um, African-American or, and those are heartwarming. And at the end of them, they leave you on and up. So try to in, um, incorporate some of that into their lives as well, so that they know that there's, you don't always have to feel bad when you're experiencing this. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like a shock moment. We got to get you there first, and then we can, <laughs> we can normalize it. But that's really what this work is about. And I do want to thank you so much for, um, inviting me on and allowing me to share because I am not, um, I haven't studied racism. I'm learning a lot in this position. I've only been in my position since May. So since COVID has been here, I've been in this job. But one of the things that I am learning is that the things that I feel have terminology, they have words, they have history. There's a reason that these things exist. And as I gain more of that knowledge, I'm able to understand more of what is underpinning the systems that are in our um, in our country today. So Thank you for having me here. I really do appreciate the opportunity.
0: Oh, thank you so much for, for joining me and being a part of this. And any resources you can share? Any suggestions, yes. movies, any, any resource <laughs> list, please send it my way. I'll include it in the show yes. notes.
2: And yes, then- we're having a movie watch club. We're doing that. We're doing um, I Am Not Your Negro, which is the James Baldwin experience. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you some information that you can just share with anyone. Great. Awesome.
0: That's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and 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 how about you, Dan? Anything that you want to say before uh, we wrap up?
1: Sure. I just, you know, I actually to that end, I just watched the. Um, I checked out um, the uh, the page this morning, challengingracism.org, and I had been meaning to watch the Baldwin documentary, uh, so I did this morning, before this, um, to kind of uh, get into some of the, the the source material that that y'all have been disseminating and uh, f- fascinating look at, you know, not only the way that this conversation is had, you know, centered around race, but just around sort of American culture in general, and why it's so difficult for people to have these conversations. I think that it's important for, uh, for, for people who are trying to spread this conversation to understand why it's so difficult for people to have it. I think that that documentary did it better than, uh, than any I've seen uh, in, in quite some time or anything that I've read. You know, and I think I think Erica, just to to a point that you made earlier about sort of um you know going to your uh, community and sort of people don't want to talk about politics. They just they want to go and sort of, you know yoga and and sort of spirituality is this place where you sort of get a refuge from politics. You know, I mean, I hear that as a political scientist, and it makes me sad um, because I think that politics is a place where you can go and actually find some you know po- politics should be a place for liberation and for, you know, character building and for education and for democracy and sharing ideas and gaining empathy and becoming a better person. So, you know, I think, I I hope that someday the political realm is different uh, than it is now. I think that we're on our way, you know, it's been such a place for ugliness, I think in the last, you know, in the last several years. And so I hope that it's a place where people can actually find refuge and sort of find themselves almost, you know, so to speak. You know, right now, we're we're trying to do a lot of work in Blue Revolution to sort of you know, make sure that people are still getting out into the political realm to fight for justice and to fight for equality and to fight for these things, but to be able to sort of take a break from it. So it's like, I understand why people don't want to mix politics and and sort of self-care, but I would love to get to a place where we can, you mm-hmm. know, I'd love to get to a place where politics is actually redemptive rather than something that's just a cacophony of, of a race, you know, a race to the bottom and a cacophony of, of madness, you know? So hopefully th- some of these conversations that we have can, can, um, can find themselves in the political sphere and, and not just in kind of the the, the private spaces. But, but I think that, you know, I would um, I would endorse what's, what's uh, happening over at Alicia's organization, uh as a resource, because I did check it out all morning and it's, it's truly fantastic that, that uh, you know, democratic-minded citizens are having these conversations around the country and we need to support them. Um, so I, I applaud the both of you uh, for, for all the incredible work that, that y'all are both doing.
0: Thank you, Dan. And I have to say uh, being a part of the Blue Revolution group, that was a lifesaver for me because it helped me feel like I was a part of a like-minded community and still is. It's really wonderful. And I can't say enough things about it and, and thank you for thank you for doing what you're doing too. And if either of you, I have wanted, I have reached out, I've put feelers out. I have wanted to interview somebody on the topic of spiritual activism because there's a disconnect there. When I put that out there, I always get crickets because like you've said, there's this disconnect where the spiritual world is out here and then there's politics is over here and the the, the two, they never want them to cross over. And I would like to change that. I would like to have a deeper conversation about s- spiritual activism. The the closest person I've seen who attempted to tackle that was Marianne Williamson. And she was, she was kind of vilified because, you know, they people just they made fun of her. They just didn't, they weren't ready for someone to bring that level of conversation into the political arena. So if either of you have anybody to recommend, by all means, please do. I do. <laughs> yes, I had a feeling you might. <laughs> okay we'll talk after this um anything Leisha? i saw you taking notes did you want to say anything else
2: i did just want to say that if you ever need anything else if there's anything i can do to support you help you get this message out let me know i am but an email away you now we connect and um and i'm going to look at this blue revolution thing because i'm like am i missing out like maybe i need to be on another you're gonna love it calling for me yes i'm going to look
1: we're partisan hacks but for a good cause so you know
2: <laughs> that's okay
0: that's yeah. okay well thank you both thank you both so much i i i definitely feel supported in this conversation um and i'm definitely going to be continuing to reach out to to both of you so thank you so much and we'll talk soon
1: thank you erica thank you
2: erica
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All Ways Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoy this podcast, let me know by leaving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving.